On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Let's go back to London. Uh, we did hear from Brussels earlier in the programme from Suzanne Lynch of Politico um, about the Brussels view on the prospective deal that's in the offing and um, that's trying to, to get to the bottom of the Northern Ireland Protocol, among many other things. Um, let's get the London view uh, from George Parker, the political editor of the Financial Times. George, thanks for joining us. Um, same opening question to you as I put to Suzanne earlier. Um, is there a deal? Is there a deal in the offing? Are they still talking? Have the talks done? Where are we this lunchtime? I think the deal is done. I think essentially all the talking has been done about the detail of this agreement. And the only thing that's left to be discussed is the exact timing and the way it's presented, particularly to party, the political parties in the UK and in Northern Ireland, the DUP. But yeah, I think the um, I think the deal is, is done. And uh, there's speculation swirling around that we could start to see some of the details as soon as today, um, with a formal announcement as soon as tomorrow. So things are moving very fast. As far as you're aware, then, what's actually in the deal when it comes to Northern Ireland? There seems to be some talk about red lanes and green lanes and thereby avoiding the need for some things coming from Britain to be checked on the way into the north. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the thing that people were most vexed about initially was the fact that there there were trade borders being erected between trade coming across the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So the idea is that you create a green lane for goods that were coming across the Irish Sea and were going to stay in Northern Ireland, in other words, part of the United Kingdom market, and then a red lane for goods that were coming from Great Britain that were going to head through Northern Ireland into the into Ireland and therefore into the into the European single market. So that's the, that's the heart of it. Then, of course, you get into sort of more constitutional questions about the application of EU law in Northern Ireland. Mm. That's something that particularly uh, gets the Eurosceptics in the UK going. And I think one of the things we're going to see is the return of control over issues like VAT, taxation and state aid policy to Westminster from Brussels. That will be seen as a a big win. Mm. And then, of course, the question about the role of the European Court of Justice in policing all of this. Now, the ECJ will remain there. It will be, I think, described in the final agreement as being there in the last resort, but it will still be there. And I think that's the one thing that lots of Eurosceptics will alight on as being the sort of bit of the deal they can't swallow. Sure, and I'll come back to that in just a second when it comes to the views of the D, of the DUP. Um, it sounds, though, that if you have these, this idea of a green lane and a red lane and that you're you're happy to base on, on trust the idea that stuff comes through the green lane and isn't going to go into the single market, it sounds like the EU is now willing to show a little bit more latitude or a little bit of, of slippiness when it comes to the single market that it wasn't previously prepared to do. Yeah, there's been a technical fix, which is that uh, the, the British government now has got sort of IT systems which will allow it to track trade coming across the Irish Sea in real time. And there's been an agreement to share that data with the EU. So there's a better intelligence, really, of what's coming into Northern Ireland. But as you say, it sort of largely works on an honesty box kind of principle that the EU takes on trust the fact that these goods coming through the Green Lane will stay in Northern Ireland, there won't be checks or very minimal checks at the border there. So that's a crucial part of the deal. And, you know, it's important to say the EU hasn't rewritten the protocol. It's refused to reopen the treaty text. That would require all 27 member states to agree with it. This is about the implementation of the protocol. And I think lots of people always thought that actually with some goodwill, the protocol could be interpreted in a more flexible way. But of course, there hasn't been any goodwill until very recently. Mm. So what you're saying then is that the some of the IT solutions that were floated previously and then shut down as being red herrings or wishful thinking, they, they actually are now seem to be operable and workable as long as London is prepared to share the data back, which they weren't previously doing. Yeah, precisely. And uh, look, I mean, if it looks like the, this has become a backdoor into the single market and there's mass smuggling going on, then I think there will be joint ministerial committees and so on to deal with that. 
But essentially, there is going to be a lot more trust, I think, and um, the EU is going to rely on the UK actually policing this properly. Mm, it's just really striking that so many of the decisions that were shot down uh, as wishful thinking that were previously yeah. floated by Brexiteers are now actually going to be the ones that are pursued. Uh, I thought for another time, perhaps. You mentioned the role of the ECJ in being there in, in the fi- as a final arbiter of some of the rules that are still going to apply in Northern Ireland. That sort of kicks the ball then squarely to the DUP as to whether they see all of this as being agreeable in the round or whether there's individual bits that they refuse to, to sign up to. Um, there seems to be some contradictions within the British government as to whether they will pursue this in the event of the DUP not being happy. You're right. James Cleverly, the British Foreign Secretary, said that this had to be conditional on the EU, on the DUP supporting it. But that's not the official government line. Um, I think talking to my contacts in number 10, basically the British government is hopeful that the DUP don't throw this deal straight back in their face and rather the DUP goes away and looks at the fine text. And I think that's what will happen. I don't think the DUP will reject it or accept it the moment they see it. I think they'll go away and consider it. There's a DUP party executive, which I think has about 12 members on it, uh, and they'll take it away. And equally, I think the same thing will happen amongst conservative Eurosceptics London, in London. They'll take the legal text away. They'll get some lawyers to look over it. And you know, I think the government hopes that things will calm down a bit in that period while both sides are taking stock of what actually has been agreed. Um, do you have any sense, again, from those contacts in number 10 as to what they made of the Foreign Secretary going rogue and saying that this wouldn't fly unless the DUP were happy? I think they, look, I mean, I think he, he probably went further than number 10 would have liked. But it's certainly the case that the British government hopes that what they've agreed will meet the DUP's so-called seven tests, I think they were set out in 2021 Mm. for assessing any reforms to the protocol. So I think in the government's mind, they have met the DUP's criteria. The question, of course, we know the DUP speaks with many voices. Once they've had a chance to look at it, once they've banged heads with the European Research Group and the Conservative Party and some quite pure sovereignty enthusiasts, whether they'll still like it quite as much. But I think in the face of it, at least, the British government hopes this will has a fighting chance of landing with the DUP. Uh, what a 21st century phrase that is, sovereignty enthusiasts. I sort of feel like that could be a model for the decade that we're in. Really. I, think more, I think it's more of a 19th century form, Well, well, well very, very true. Um, we're getting into the weeds a little bit, but do you have any understanding of of what the role for Stormont is going to be? Because there's some talk of, of there being some kind of maybe consultative but not necessarily veto role for the Northern Ireland Assembly to try and get some sort of political authority for all of this happening. Yes, I mean, that's right. So, I mean, this is about the application of EU rules and um, changing EU rules. And the idea, I think, would be that the Northern Ireland Assembly would be consulted on new rules. But as you correctly point out, the EU wouldn't accept there being a veto. After all, you know, a step back from this, the point of the protocol is that Northern Ireland remains part of the single market for goods. And it's worth stressing that this is an extremely advantageous position for Northern Ireland to be in because it's got a foot in the UK market and a foot in the European single market. It's the only place in Europe, if you're an American inward investment, for example, where you've got free access to both markets. So it's a huge advantage, but it does mean that uh, Northern Ireland remains part of the uh, EU, EU under the EU rulebook. So the idea would be that Stormont would be consulted and will try to spot potential problems coming down the track. There was a recent ruling on steel tariffs by Brussels, which would have meant that um, steel coming across from GB into Northern Ireland could have been subject to tariffs. Now, I think if Stormont had been up and running and been consulted on that, they might have waved a red flag, but that's not mm. quite the same as a veto, of course. Yeah, that would have been one for the sovereignty enthusiasts. Um, final question <laughs> yeah. then, and um, maybe this is a level that number 10 aren't prepared to countenance, but uh, if the DUP were to throw this back at them and say, 
this doesn't meet our tests. This is a clear fragrant breach of the test because it means the ECJ has a role in, in Northern Ireland where it doesn't in the rest of Britain. Um, what then? Well, then I think Rishi Sunak would say, look, I tried. I got the best deal possible. The deal would still apply, of course. and That would make life easier for people in Northern Ireland. It will reduce trade uh, trade barriers. It will just improve conditions. It will certainly be an improvement of what's, the, of what's there at the moment. Then the DUP will have to make a big political calculation, won't they, of whether it's to their political advantage to stay out of Stormont. Uh, and some people in the DUP think yes, or whether they see this as the moment when they end the blockade and go back in. In the end, though, the British government can't be the dog being wagged by the tail of the DUP. Um, you know, in the end, the British government has to rule in government in the interests of the whole UK. And while it'd be a massive disappointment if the DUP don't go back into Stormont, you have to set this in the context of the much bigger game that Rishi Sunak's playing here, because in doing this deal, he hopes to radically transform Britain's frozen relationship with the European Union, open up a few more economic channels with the EU, get back into a, the Horizon Science Cooperation Programme, improve relations with Washington, and show that Rishi Sunak's the Prime Minister who gets things done. So there are a lot of gains to be done, gains to be had for Rishi Sunak getting get this through above and beyond just getting the DUP back into Stormont. Mm, wait and see exactly what they do. George Parker, political editor of the Financial Times, joining us from London. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon on The Record. On the record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.